Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. to the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast with your host, Nick Bat. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. And Bruce Nolan. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I am your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. Nick is on hiatus, so you've got me again for this Thursday episode of the Nick and Nolan Show. One of the things that I like about this particular time of year is it allows podcasters and content creators and media in general to be able to kind of flex their creative muscles. It allows them to show you a side of them that you may not necessarily have an opportunity to see during the season. Because during the season, your content is basically created for you. You do a podcast after a game, people want to hear about the game. You do a podcast before the next week's game, they want to hear about the upcoming game. If there's news or transactions, if there's free agent signings or draft picks, that is what the content will be about. And really the creation of content at that point becomes how best to put your stamp and your spin on the thing that's already happened. But really, you can't stray far from that concept. But this particular time of year, it becomes a little bit different. And although that is challenging for content creators and media, it also allows us to be able to kind of relax a little bit and do some things that maybe are a little bit off the beaten path. Last week, Joe Marino and I did a crossover episode as far as debating whether or not pass rush or coverage was more essential and more instrumental to a good pass defense than the other. So that was a fun time. If you have not had an opportunity to go listen to those episodes. I encourage you to do so. I think they were really interesting. It's not just a Bills topic. It is a football topic. This week, however, is specifically a Bills-only topic, and only truly Bills fans will really appreciate this. What we're going to do this particular week is we're going to have a discussion about all of the Bills quarterbacks since Jim Kelly. Since the last time that there was an elite quarterback 
under center for the Buffalo Bills, who is now in the Hall of Fame. Obviously, we can have discussions about whether or not Bledsoe, Flutie. We can have a discussion about whether or not Allen's going to be there someday. But I think that we have enough data on Josh Allen to put him on this list. And I think last offseason, we didn't. And so that's the reason why we would do it now as opposed to previously. I think that although we recognize that Allen is the only name on this list that is fluid because his career with the Bills is not over yet. He's the only one on this list who could still go higher or could still go lower because the way we're going to structure this list, we're going to rank all of the Bills quarterbacks since Jim Kelly. And we're going to do that using a couple of concepts. So as always, you know me by now, methodology is important. And so we're going to outline the way that we're going to have this discussion before we actually have it. I had a a speech writing class that I took one time. And they told me that the three steps of speech writing is number one, tell someone what you're going to tell them. Number two, tell them. And number three, tell them what you told them. So if you notice a particular pattern to my syntax and to the way that I communicate, a lot of it is based on that. It's one of the reasons why I feel like methodology discussions before the actual discussion are so important so we can all establish ground rules. The first thing is that only the time spent with the Buffalo Bills matters. What they did before the Bills, what they did after the Bills, not relevant. The second thing is that we are going to rank them not based on statistics, And the reason that is, is because you're comparing vastly different eras. The 2000 NFL season is not even close to being the same game as the 2019 NFL season. It's too far. If we were only ranking people in the last five years, sure, we could probably do that. But this is 20 years of quarterbacking. So you can't just say, well, this guy threw the most yards. Now that stuff matters, but it's not that easy because you have to wait it for the era that they played in as such. The way we're going to describe production, when we use the word production, is relative to league standards at the time. So if you hear me use the phrase production or productive about one quarterback and then use that same word to describe a different quarterback, it is relative to league standards at that time. The third thing is we were absolutely not using win-loss record to describe this. If you need more information about why wins and losses are not a quarterback stat, you can listen to basically any pod that I've done in the last two years for me to tell you why wins and losses are not a quarterback stat. And as such, we will not be judging the quarterbacks based on win-loss record during their time with the Bills. So let's start with an honorable mention. Wait, wait, hold on. Bruce, how can there be an honorable mention for a ranking of quarterbacks? Let's just throw everyone on there. Well, funny story. LaShawn McCoy actually has a start at quarterback for the Bills. There was a Patriots game. Some of you may remember the Patriots game with Derek Anderson on primetime television where LaShawn McCoy actually got the start at quarterback. Technically, because the Bills opened the game in the Wildcat. I remember thinking, goodness gracious, uh, Brian Dable has really pulled all the stops out at this point because... Josh Allen was hurt, and they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff on the opening drive to try to get some points scored. And LaShawn McCoy technically has a start at quarterback, but we're not going to rank him because he didn't throw any passes and he didn't do any quarterback things. So he is your honorable mention for this list. At the very bottom of this list is Nathan Peterman. 
I don't think you could have put any other quarterback on the bottom of this list. Nathan Peterman, from a statistical standpoint, is a historically bad quarterback. One of the worst starting quarterbacks over the span of multiple games in the history of football. That's how bad it is. That's not anything hyperbolic to say. That is really, really, really bad. And I think that Nate Peterman is a great example of how arm talent matters and that how the two things as far as arm strength and anticipation are correlative and the more of one you have, the less of the other that you need. And so he can, he can see things later if he has a cannon and he doesn't have a cannon, so he can't afford to see things late. And so when those two things combine, when you don't anticipate great and you also have a less than average NFL caliber arm that leads to unbelievable problems throwing outside the numbers. And that's exactly what we saw with Nate Peterman. He couldn't throw outside the numbers. Every time he did, it was likely to get jumped and going the other way for pick six, as opposed to our current quarterback, Josh Allen, who can see things way later than any reasonable quarterback should and be able to get the ball in. I've seen some, some cutups and some clips of him throwing into zone coverage where under reasonable arm strength, that person is not open. But because he has a cannon, he can get away with it. Nate Peterman cannot get away with it and did not get away with it. And that's what lands him on the bottom of this list. Up next is Brian Brom. Brian Brom. We thought maybe he was the savior because we were enamored with the fact that he had draft status. And when he was drafted, there were actual discussions about whether or not Brian Brom or Aaron Rodgers was going to be the heir to Brett Favre. It seems ridiculous for us to think that at this time. Brian Braun ended up starting one game for the Bills and never impressed. And so that's what puts him almost at the bottom of the list. Moving up, Jeff Toole. Jeff Toole, man. I remember the Colts preseason game where Marone and Hackett got a chance to kind of show off their offense. And we thought, my goodness gracious, look at how well this thing moves. Look at this offense for the Buffalo Bills and this creative, dynamic offense that Nate Hackett is bringing with him from Syracuse. If it can make Jeff Toole look good, what else can it do? And Jeff Toole, to be fair, the expectations never should have been reasonable for Jeff Toole. He was undrafted for a reason, and he didn't have the physical skills necessary to be an upper echelon starting quarterback. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't land down here. Next on the list is Thad Lewis. I liked Thad Lewis. I thought Thad Lewis was a middle of the ground, middle of the ground backup in the NFL. And I appreciated him playing as well and as tight as he did against the Dolphins, which for a lot of Bills fans who are a little bit older, the Dolphins are their heated rival. For some people who are a little younger, it will always be the Patriots because when that group grew up, there was a 20-year stretch of dominance for the New England Patriots that maybe just now is no longer a case. But for people who were fans back in the 70s, the Miami Dolphins will always be the rival for the Bills, no matter what else happens. And having Thad Lewis play as well as he did against the Dolphins, that's something that, that really helps out. Next on the list is Derek Anderson. Derek Anderson didn't have it anymore when he got to the Bills by any means, but I think his value as a mentor 
to Josh Allen, I think mattered. Josh Allen talked about how his value was contributed in that locker room and on the whiteboard and helping him understand what it takes to be a professional. Derek Anderson at one point was considered to be a rising star in the NFL for the Cleveland Browns during the year when Romeo Crennel and Phil Savage were running the Cleveland Browns and the Browns had a winning record and Derek Anderson made a Pro Bowl with Braylon Edwards and Kellen Winslow and he never really recaptured that ever again, but he kind of settled into a reasonable backup role with Carolina. And it makes sense that they wanted him to come along. Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott did. And they wanted him to be in the room with Josh Allen the way that they really wanted a veteran in that room to begin with. And Nate Peterman was not it. And I think that Derek Anderson and combined with Matt Barkley were able to give Josh Allen what he needed. Next on the list... We have Alex Van Pelt. Alex Van Pelt was the beginning of Buffalo Bills fans' ideas that franchise quarterbacks don't grow on trees. I think the Patriots fans might be in for a rude awakening if Jared Stidham doesn't end up being the guy. I'm not saying he will or he won't. I'm saying when you've had a guy that was upper echelon for a long time, Sometimes you start to forget how difficult it is to find one. And because of that, when Alex Van Pelt rolled around after Todd Collins with Jim Kelly being in the rearview mirror, I think Alex Van Pelt's when they started to realize, oh, goodness gracious, um, maybe, maybe getting a franchise guy is hard. And Alex Van Pelt never had any sort of statistical reasonable success in the NFL. He has had success as a coach, which is not surprising because when you look at Alex Van Pelt and you think, gosh, what did he do well? I think we can agree that he had the mental processing part of the game in a high level. He did it at a high level, but there was just the significant lack of arm talent that you had, especially of drop off from people like Jim Kelly and Todd Collins, who had good arm talent as well. And that's what Alex Van Pelt ends up at this spot on the list. Next is Todd Collins. Todd Collins was going to be the guy, second round pick out of Michigan. He was going to be the guy. He was going to be the next Jim Kelly. We spent a relatively high draft pick on him and just understood that this was going to be easy, right? He was a good looking kid, had a good arm. He came from a big college. He played in the cold weather and he was going to be pro ready coming from that offense at Michigan at the time. And it just never materialized for Todd Collins. He wasn't a terrible quarterback, but he wasn't anything that was even close to being what Bills fans were used to. And because of that, that's when you started to see, oh my goodness gracious, it's not going to be the way it was. It's not going to be the Jim Kelly Bills anymore. It's not going to happen as easily as it has happened since the early 90s. This might be another search. Next on the list is Matt Barkley. Might seem like it's a little high, but I think Matt Barkley has redeeming characteristics. I think he's a very middle-of-the-road backup quarterback. I'm not overly comfortable with him starting a lot of games for the Bills, but I do appreciate his aggressive nature. I think that with a little bit better processing, I think Matt Barkley would have an opportunity to be a Ryan Fitzpatrick-level quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick is markedly better, I think, than people give him credit for. And you'll cease that when I talk about this list. But 
Matt Barkley's aggressiveness has always been something that I have appreciated, especially as it comes to backup traits. One of the things that I talked about with Nick was, hey, what kind of traits do you want in your backup? And one of the things that I talked about is I want aggressiveness in my backup. I don't want someone to come in and be Trent Edwards. I don't want them to constantly check the ball down. I don't want them to manage the game. A lot of people like game managers in their backup quarterbacks. I do not. I want aggressiveness in my backup quarterback. I want to increase the variability because when you go from a backup quarterback, from sorry, from a starting quarterback to a backup quarterback, you are increasing variance in the game because you have a drop off in talent between your quarterback and very likely the opposing team's quarterback. Very unlikely that your backup quarterback is more talented than the starting quarterback of the other team. That is fairly unlikely. As such, your probability of winning that game just went way down. So one of the things you can do to help offset that is you can introduce chaos. Have a quarterback who can run. Have a quarterback who's got a great deep ball. Maybe someone like Tyler Huntley, who is someone that I... I, I wanted desperately in the draft. I liked Anthony Gordon, Yolo Gordon from Washington State. I want to introduce a little bit of chaos. And when you have a backup who has that aggressiveness, I think that's something that behooves the team. And I appreciate that in Matt Barkley. Next is EJ Manuel. It's not EJ Manuel's fault that he was a first round pick. He shouldn't have been. It's not his fault that This team drafted him in the middle of the first round and expected him to be a franchise savior. I don't think that's ever what he was going to be. I'd also make an argument that if EJ Manuel would have been drafted where he probably should have been on day two or maybe early day three, that maybe there was a chance for stronger development from that player. But EJ Manuel was never really a natural thrower of the ball. And that's the thing that really stuck out to me when I watched him from Florida State. He was one of the people I got in arguments with about accuracy and whether or not completion percentage. Him and Tebow were my big arguments on the the Buffalo Bills message boards before they were drafted. My big arguments were whether or not completion percentage meant accuracy. And Tebow in college and EJ Manuel in college were my two arguments that completion percentage in college does not tell me how accurate you're going to be in the NFL. And part of that's because... He was just a robotic thrower of the ball, and I didn't trust his mechanics to be consistent. I would argue that Josh Allen, even though he's not an overly accurate passer, is a much more natural thrower of the ball than EJ Manuel was. I appreciated EJ's attitude while he was here. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to Nick's podcast with Eric Wood talking about his conversation with EJ Manuel and how enlightening that was about the way that EJ felt when he was here and some of the fan reaction. That was really, really a good piece of work by Nick and Eric Wood talking about EJ Manuel. And if you haven't done that, please go back and listen to that because it's really enlightening as it goes in regards to EJ Manuel. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We are going to finish this list. And then I'm going to tell you what else we have on docket here for the Nick and Nolan show coming up in the coming weeks. Be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Nick and Nolan Show. I am your host, Bruce Nolan. This is a Buffalo Rumblings podcast, and you can find me on Twitter at Bruce Exclusive. We are continuing our ranking of the Buffalo Bills quarterbacks since Kelly. Wait a minute, our ranking. It's not our ranking, it's my ranking. You are here listening to my ranking, and then you're going to go to Twitter, you're going to make sure you're following me if you're not already, and then you're going to tell me all the things I did wrong, because that's how this works. So, We've already been through the list to recap from the bottom moving up. It is Nathan Peterman, Brian Brom, Jeff Toole, Thad Lewis, 
Derek Anderson, Alex Van Pelt, Todd Collins, Matt Barkley, EJ Manuel. Now, moving on with the list, we're going with Trent Edwards. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Captain Checkdown. There were stretches of good with Trent Edwards. I do think that more Bills fans overrate the concussion. I think a lot of people, I mentioned on Twitter that a lot of people, I think, overvalue what he was doing before the concussion. And if he was playing at a crazy elite level, I think he showed flashes before the concussion. But mind you, one of Trent's best games, I would argue his best game, was after he came back from the concussion. So I don't think this idea that we really had something and by some cruel twist of fate that the concussion stole it from us. I don't necessarily know if I buy that, but he had moments of brilliance. None of the other players on this list up to this point have had moments of brilliance until now. I don't think EJ Manuel had moments of brilliance. I think that if you look back at some of EJ Manuel's best games, I mean, a lot of people talk about the, you know, the Carolina comeback, but you know, the Carolina game-winning drive was check down, check down, check down, assistance from a pass interference call, and then a wide open pass to Stevie Johnson where the defenders miscommunicated. So I don't think even EJ Manuel's shining moments were not as good as Trent's. I think there's a clear delineation at this point between the ceiling that we got from players like Trent Edwards and on up from the players we got from EJ Manuel on down. And that's the reason why I decided to take the commercial break right there. I think there's a clear line of delineation right there. Trent Edwards, of course, we had the captain check down. His ability to not be able to throw it inside the numbers down the field was incredibly frustrating. We saw it a couple times. I remember the Washington Redskins game where we drove down the field at the very end, got a game-winning field goal. Joe Gibbs called two timeouts in a row which is an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. We got an extra 15 yards and Ryan Lindell hit the game winner. That was one of the most beautiful intermediate passes I ever saw from Trent Edwards. And I was very upset that we never really saw it again. He actually had a fairly decent deep ball. He had good touch on the deep ball. And of course he had accuracy underneath, but the area of the field that Josh Allen does really well at the 10 to 20 yard intermediate routes, Trent Edwards never got there. And when there are throws that you will not or cannot make as a quarterback, the defense will eventually figure you out because it's a lot easier to take away a quarterback's ability to throw the ball effectively when you know that there's something you do not have to accommodate for. On my podcast with Joe Marino, we were talking about pass rush versus coverage. We mentioned that there are specific things that a coverage will give you. Every coverage has a weakness. And if you know that a quarterback is not able to take advantage of that weakness, then that's bad. Because they can, you can give them something and hold out your hand and say, here, Trent, middle of the field, seam throws, take advantage, please. And there is nothing he will do about it. And that's incredibly frustrating to watch as a fan as well, which is why Trent Edwards shows up at this spot on the list. Next on the list is Rob Johnson. I do not agree with the take that Rob Johnson is better than Doug Flutie, as you can tell from this list. That was going around uh, Twitter not too long ago when it came to hot takes on athletes, but Rob Johnson had good moments. The problem with Rob Johnson was number one, he couldn't stay healthy. And number two, his playing style indicated that he was never going to stay healthy because he held the ball too long. And I think that one of the things that led Bill's fans to gravitate toward Doug Flutie was that he was such a significant juxtaposition from what they were used to seeing. Tap, 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 sack. 
And this is somebody, Rob Johnson had good mobility. He was good at being an athlete, but his pocket clock was broken. It was like late stage Drew Bledsoe kind of broken. And because of that, he took hits he wasn't supposed to take, and he was frustrating to watch. And really, I think fans can let go of inaccuracy more than they can let go of not letting go of the ball. I really feel that's true. I feel like if a fandom watches a quarterback and they feel like they want to pull their hair out, just screaming at the television, throw the ball, then that is way more frustrating than dealing with inaccuracy or dealing with some of the issues. I think it's one of the reasons why they've gravitated to Josh Allen is because you don't have this issue with Josh Allen where he tap, 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 sacks. You know, he might be fighting his way out of, you know, four tackles in the backfield, but because he's shown the ability to be elusive in the backfield, we're giving him a little bit of slack that we never gave to Rob Johnson. I think the personality has something to do with it as well. I don't think the fans identified with Rob Johnson, but there were moments of brilliance. Rob Johnson had a good arm and he had good arm talent. He had decent accuracy. There were some really highlight level throws that Rob Johnson made, but his inability to stay healthy and his inability to make the players around him look better, specifically on the offensive line, lands him at this spot on the list. Next on the list is J.P. Lossman. J.P. Lossman had an unbelievable deep ball, baby. I mean, just a crazy deep ball. Can you imagine if Josh Allen had J.P. Lossman's deep ball? That would have been something special. Watching the Lossman to Evans connections are impressive. And I understand that he never developed past his first 3,000-yard season. But I think that that's a really good example as far as where we're at with Josh Allen. I think we can look back at J.P. Lossman and go, we were expecting him to take the next step, and he never did. Not every quarterback takes the next step. J.P. Lossman peaked out at a 3,000-yard season that was helped along by a ridiculous game by Lee Evans against the Texans, And I think that that's a really good cautionary tale for Bills fans to understand that there is a ceiling for players, and it's not just untapped forever. At some point, you can no longer accommodate for your weaknesses. You can no longer get better. Everyone has a cap, and sometimes you hit yours even when the fandom doesn't think that you're capped out. So I think that really interesting to look back at J.P. Lossman and look back at his career as I was preparing for this pod in relation to how we view Josh Allen now. Because J.P. Lossman had a good season. We were expecting him to take the next step, and he just didn't. Next on the list, Kelly Holcomb. Kelly Holcomb had some pretty good games to his credit, and I think people kind of sleep on him. I think he was clearly the better quarterback in the Holcomb versus Lossman debate. And... People forget that Kelly Holcomb with the Browns dropped over 400 yards on the Steelers in a playoff game. And there was a legitimate thought that he could have been the next guy. He wrestled the job away from two first-round picks. He took it from Tim Couch in Cleveland, and then he took it from J.P. Lossman in Buffalo. And I don't think he gets kind of the respect that he probably deserves. But if you go back and watch Kelly Holcomb, which I did, before this podcast, I came to appreciate how talented of a player he was and how if he would have had a team that would have devoted itself to him, he could have been a reasonable level starter. Not a great start. He was never going to be an upper echelon quarterback, I don't think. But I think that there was an opportunity for him to be a reasonable 
starting quarterback, if we would have built an offense around Kelly Holcomb's strength, and if we wouldn't have yo-yoed in and out as we did during the quarterback debates of the mid-2000s. Next on the list is Kyle Orton. I will openly admit I have a soft spot for Kyle Orton due to his personality, so fair warning. But this is my rankings. I can do whatever the heck I want. Kyle Orton's aloofness is... I just incredibly endearing to me. Kyle Orton saying at the end of that season with Doug Marone that he was just, hey, you know, I got a meeting to run to and I'll just I'll be back in a little bit. And then he left and never heard from again. Just gone. Poof. The media never talked to him. He just left like a fart in a windstorm. He was gone. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate the stash. I appreciate the 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 I don't give a care kind of attitude. And also, I appreciated the fact that he had that aggressiveness that I talked about with Matt Barkley. I think Kyle Orton was a really, really good upper echelon backup quarterback in this league. And I think that there was a reasonable expectation when Kyle Orton came in the game that he wasn't going to lose it for you. He was going to give his playmakers a chance to make a play on the ball, which was a really, really good distraction from what we were used to seeing from EJ Manuel who wouldn't pull the trigger on a lot of things. And a lot of people were worried that he was going to turn into Trent Edwards. Kyle Orton was not that way. Kyle Orton believed that his players were going to make plays for him. It almost felt like Kyle Orton believed that he was operating on borrowed time as a quarterback. Well, I'm not really supposed to be here, but yet I'm still here in the NFL. So I'm just going to sling it around, see what happens. And I always really appreciated that about that. I think that of all the people on this list, I think that Kyle Orton would have made the best long-term high echelon backup quarterback. Next on the list is Tyrod Taylor. I like Tyrod Taylor. I don't think that Tyrod Taylor got us to the playoffs in 2017. So I don't like it when people say Tyrod ended the drought, because again, I don't believe quarterback wins and losses are quarterback stat. And if I don't believe wins and losses are quarterback stat, then I can't really say that Tyrod ended the drought because that would be intellectually dishonest. However, Tyrod was a good fit for the Greg Roman offense in a crazy sort of way. He had the threat of running the ball. He threw a very good deep ball. There were those same issues you ran into with Trent Edwards. If you had Trent Edwards and you gave him better mobility, I think you'd get kind of a Tyrod Taylor sort of quarterback because the same places on the field where Tyrod refused to throw the ball are the same places where Trent refused to throw the ball. And that's the reason why Tyrod regressed during his time with the Bills instead of progressed during his time. Now, part of that is weapons around him. He never had as good of a system around him as he did when Greg Roman was calling plays and he had Sammy Watkins and he had Percy Harvin and he had Carlos Williams in the backfield and he had LaShawn McCoy. There was never a better scenario for Tyrod than right that. So we saw the peak for Tyrod. He wasn't going to take the next step as a quarterback, but I always really appreciated Tyrod. I also appreciated his professionalism. I appreciated the way that he led this team. And I think that there is going to be a level of appreciation for Tyrod later on after he's retired and we don't have to deal with the never should have gotten rid of Tyrod for Allen discussion on social media. Once that's no longer a discussion, I think people will be more willing to give him more credit. Next on the list is Josh Allen. Yes, that's right. I have Josh Allen above Tyrod Taylor. I understand that statistically Tyrod Taylor has thus far been a better quarterback when it comes to completion percentage and 
Tyrod threw a better deep ball. And I understand that there are aspects that Tyrod is better at than Josh Allen. However, I mentioned earlier that not having a quarterback utilize an era area of the field is unbelievably frustrating to me. And I don't have to worry about that with Josh Allen. I don't think Josh Allen is an elite or great quarterback at this point. I've gone on record and said that many times. In fact, I would make an argument he's not good right now. He's okay. He's, he's, he's an okay quarterback. But I think there's potential for him to be good. I think there's potential for him to be great because there aren't things that Josh Allen can't do. There are simply things that he doesn't currently do consistently. And as long as that's the case, that gives you hope. And with Tyrod, by the end of year three, we were all pretty much like, you know what? He's not getting any better. He's not improving at this point. He's the same quarterback he's always been. We've seen the best we have to offer from Tyrod. With Josh Allen, there aren't areas of his game where you say he just refuses to do that. He can't do that. He just can't. Now, there are areas he doesn't do them consistently, and if he doesn't get those corrected, then it's basically like he can't. But there's a difference between I can't do that or I won't do that, and I don't do it as well as I need to do it. There's a difference between those two concepts. And every area of playing quarterback, Josh Allen can do it. He can check the box for intermediate accuracy. He can check the box for deep throws. Not last year, he didn't. He can check the box for leadership. He can check the box for mobility. He can check the box for pocket movement. He can check the box for audibling to the correct play. He can check all those things. He just needs to check all of them more frequently and not screw up at them as often. So because of that, that's what tips the hand. I think you're, you're splitting a lot of hairs between Allen and Tyrod, but that's the reason why I personally have Allen over Tyrod. Above Josh Allen, we're in the top three now. It's time for Doug Flutie. Nick is going to be very upset because I'm sure he's going to have him at number one because Doug Flutie is his all-time favorite, all-time favorite athlete. But Doug Flutie was a game manager who was mobile. Doug Flutie was a markedly better version of Tyrod Taylor because he could make game-breaking plays over the middle of the field. And because of that, I think sometimes we lose sight of Doug Flutie not being the best quarterback in the league. Doug Flutie was a game manager who was at a high level of a game manager. Now, he could make plays, but he didn't really have to. That was a, a team that was really defense-focused when Doug Flutie was the quarterback. And his job was to make timely plays in the pass and run game to keep drives going. And he did that. And he occasionally makes splashy, flashy plays with jump passes and mobility that would jump off the page at you. But consistently down in and down out, you couldn't necessarily count on him getting elite quarterback play from the pocket at all times. And because of that, that's what puts him number three on the list instead of number one. I like Doug Flutie. I think Doug Flutie's great. He was one of my favorite quarterbacks when I grew up. But I think when you go back and watch him now, you realize that there were areas of the playing quarterback motif that Doug Flutie didn't check. And because of that, he was always going to be someone who could be carried by a really good defense and have a good supporting cast, which he did have a good supporting cast around him. Doug Flutie had a talented team. He didn't carry the team. He had a talented team around him, and he didn't screw it up 
by making boneheaded plays. He made enough splash plays to win and he didn't make drastic mistakes. And that's good and that's great, but it's not as good as the top two players on this list. Number two is Ryan Fitzpatrick. This might be a little bit of a hot take. Ryan Fitzpatrick played really, really well with really terrible supporting cast here in Buffalo, guys. I think you need to go back and watch some of that film from during the Chan Gailey era and realize that it was Donald Jones and it was David Nelson and Stevie Johnson, who was a good receiver. But part of what made Stevie Johnson great was having Ryan Fitzpatrick ability to process quickly and be able to get the ball to Stevie after a short area separation before the coverage collapsed on him again. In addition, the offensive line was not good during Ryan Fitzpatrick's time here. And CJ Spiller had one good year until people realized he was allergic to contact. Fred Jackson was, of course, in his prime, and that was awesome. But Ryan Fitzpatrick threw for 3,800 yards, folks. There are still, if, if, if Josh Allen had the statistical season that Ryan Fitzpatrick had under Chan Gailey, we'd be like, well, yeah, he needs to cut back on the interceptions, but he's totally the guy. And people don't realize that. If Ryan Fitzpatrick had better arm talent, he would have been a franchise quarterback. He has the right mental processing. He has the right aggressiveness. His accuracy has a tendency to fail him sometimes, but that's only because he has to put so much effort into every throw because his arm natural talent isn't great. He's an example of a player where you look at and go arm talent and arm strength specifically matters a lot because if he had it, he'd be a franchise quarterback. He was one trait away from being the guy in Buffalo or anywhere else. But if he had that one trait, he probably wouldn't have been a seventh round pick one trait away. And he's still producing at a high level across the NFL. He's still taking starters jobs everywhere he goes because he gives your team a chance to win. He gives his playmakers a chance to make plays on the ball. He's a good quarterback. Number one is Drew Bledsoe. If Josh Allen this year had the seasons that Drew Bledsoe had, specifically the 2002 season, we would think we had found the second coming of Jim Kelly. And I think people kind of brush it out because they don't like the way it ended with Drew Bledsoe. And I don't like the way it ended with Drew Bledsoe either with the internal clock not really going off anymore and him holding the ball pat, pat, pat and them getting to him as the pass rush goes. I don't like how it ended here either. But 4,300 yards, if Josh Allen threw for 4,300 yards this upcoming season, we'd be dancing in the streets. Drew Bledsoe does it. We're like, ah, I don't really know. You know, pat, pat, pat. I understand. He does not fit today's NFL. And if I was starting a team with my list of quarterbacks from Bill's years past, post-Kelly, I would not start it with Drew Bledsoe. But that's not what this list is. This is ranking the Bill's quarterbacks in effectiveness and the best quarterbacks since Kelly. This is not a start your team with one of these players. If it was, I would not take Drew Bledsoe. He would not be a fit in today's NFL. And I think that his extreme lack of mobility would be a significant problem. But Drew Bledsoe took this offense and this passing offense specifically to a level that we have not seen before or since in the post-Kelly era. And as such, he is number one on this list. 
I think Allen specifically is fluid on this list. We talked about that before. I think there's an opportunity for him to move up. There's an opportunity for him to move down. If he's here for two more seasons and he regresses, then he has a chance to slide down this list. But again, wins and loss are not a quarterback stat. So you can't say he's a winner. Drew Bledsoe wasn't a winner. He's a winner. Drew Bledsoe also had a horrendous defense to deal with in 2002. It was, it was terrible. When he was at his peak, the defense was at their lowest. And then when the defense got rebuilt and was great, he was coming down. It was just bad timing all the way around. And that's really what the drought felt like. The post-Kelly era felt like bad timing. When the defense was good, the offense was bad. When the offense was good, the defense was bad. It just couldn't get synced up. And it needs to be synced up this year for us to make a run in the playoffs. And part of that comes from Allen taking the next step on this list. Guys, hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you think about the list. Let's have a discussion. I'm at Bruce Exclusive. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Nick and Nolan Show. Stay with me for tomorrow because I'm going to have some interesting things to tell you tomorrow. But a little teaser. I have the first Nick and Nolan podcast series being planned right now. And not this week, but next week, we are going to start a podcast series that I think you will really enjoy. And we're going to take some time to evaluate where the bills stack up in relation to their AFC East foes. So stick with me for that next week. But tomorrow I have a different episode for you and I think you're really going to like it. And the only thing I'll really tell you about it, I'm just going to give you a little tease, is this right here. I do the cha-cha like a sissy girl. I like a do the cha-cha.